Thank you, JP. You're welcome. Uh, so one of the things that we want to do is, as we've got about uh, 15, 20 minutes left, is to open up questions for the audience. <laughs> Easy, Tim. <laughs> uh, to get our minds rolling, and I hope you're listening and have some thoughts going, uh, one of the things I want to open up, the first question, though, for you, uh, Dr. Moreland, yeah. is as we've, we're just at the tail end here of our series called Humbly Unified, where we've been looking at how the church is unified, and, and as you just spoke about how culture is uh, affecting not only the church, but the knowledge base of the church, uh, how would you say these culturalistic um, uh, naturalistic, uh, postmodern relativism and scientism are affecting the way that we interact with one another as a body? Well, I think we tend to be ingrown and huddled and afraid. Um, we're frustrated. Somebody needs to do something about this, <laughs> what we see on television. And we're frustrated because the culture is crazy. It, it's the craziest culture I have ever seen. Up is down and down is up. And we, we feel like we should be able to do more about it. So I think we tend to be frustrated. And in order to keep from feeling frustrated, uh, we've circled the wagons. And we make most of our teaching about our own personal growth. And we've abandoned reason and replaced it with just blind faith. Uh, and that is a good way to protect yourself from arguments against us because you can say they don't matter because it's all about faith at the end of the day anyway. And I also think that we become, you know, if you know what you're talking about in some area, you're not defensive in it. You have confidence. You don't have to get angry. And so I think the more that you know about some subject, the more you're able to kind of speak about it at the office water cooler without getting upset with people that disagree with you because you're confident that what you, what you know is, is solid and you can let people differ with you. You can be relaxed about things. But that comes from uh, praying and keeping your powder dry, knowing what you're talking about. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's one of the things that I actually tell people when I talk with them is ignorance isn't our friend. And so when, when I want to speak to uh, a Muslim person, I want to know the five pillars of Islam. If I'm going to talk, talk to a scientism a person that thinks that way, I want to know the basis of what they believe that's and right. why. And uh, I think that's a really good point. Tim's got the mic, uh, so there's some, here's Charles, has got a question here. Um, let me know if you don't understand me because I've got an accent. Okay, do you understand me so far? I love your accent. Thank you. Here's just my hair in the last bit. All people from Germany, they believe me. <laughs> so... I'm sure that was funny, but I didn't understand it. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to come here. Um, my question for you, it's in the culture today. People take extreme positions. So a lot of times when you're trying to ask a question, or you're talking to people that are far to the left or to the right, for example, um, a lot of times people won't even listen at all. They'll just call you labels. You yes. know, like you'll... You know, I, I'm not trying to talk about politics, but there's an overlap there. You know, if people say, oh, I'm a Christian, and they may be somebody the first side to say, oh, you're a conservative, you're a Nazi, or you're, you're this label, or you're close-minded. What do you do about those people? Are they even worth engaging with? Yes. Uh, a label is always a substitute for an argument. And the people who use that don't know how to, how to pre reason for their views. 
So they get angry and they label you, which lets them off the hook from having to give answers for why they hold what they do. If they can call you a bigot or intolerant, well, then everybody, you're going to die under the chair and uh, hide. I mean, nobody wants to be called that, but guess what? People who respond that way are victims of our university system who don't teach people how to think anymore. They really don't. Uh, they are political. They are. There are two kinds of schools: truth schools. This is. This was researched by the leading social psychologist in the world, Jonathan Haidt, at New York University, and he discovered. He gave a lecture at Duke University on this. Two kinds of schools: truth universities and social justice universities. Ninety-five percent of the universities of the country are social justice universities. Their stated goal is not to help students learn how to think or discover the truth. It's to, it is to raise up and equip a new generation of social justice warriors. The truth, they, they have uh, anywhere from 13 to 19 to 1 liberal to conservative professors, secular to conservative professors, Christian professors. And um, they, uh, they protest when a speaker comes on campus to present an alternative view. Truth universities, which are 5%, Hillsdale College would be an example, actually have a much more balanced faculty, and they welcome interaction and dialogue and debate about the ideas of our day. At Biola Christian School, we have all kinds of people come in and defend gay rights, defend atheism, abortion. We have responses and a charitable, but heated, strong conversation, but these people want to come back. And the reason you're seeing that is because people are stupid. Uh, I, I don't mean to, I'm sorry. They're not learning, I'm talking about millennials. Now they don't, they don't value thinking anymore. They don't value reading. They listen to music and entertainment and their self is stupid thing. And um, <laughs> not the Bible. Uh, uh, oh my gosh, this thing. And uh, they don't know how to think their way out of a wet paper bag. And so what do you do when you find somebody that holds a view that you've been taught in college for four years is evil? You, you throw names at them because you don't know how to think with them. People who know how to think well about the world can have calm, civil discussions. That's why we're not threatened to Biola, to have people of all kinds of stripes come and defend their views because we're confident in Christian worldview. So that's my view. Did I answer the question you asked? <laughs> Thanks, great. Thank you right for here. asking, John. So this kind of stems off of what he was talking about right here. But with all the political correctness that we have in this world, and you know, you're in the workplace, you're at school and college, or even high school for that matter. I've had a lot of experiences where I've been exiled by people for yes, yes. you know speaking the truth and what yeah. I believe, and that's not even doesn't even have to be political. It, right, right. You know, be it could be Bible. moral or religious. Yep. How do you go about that and taking it one step further? How do you go about not getting into trouble, especially in the workplace? You know, if somebody wants to banter with you yeah. about here's my view and then here's my view, you know, that's great. That's what I, w I want to learn both sides. Yes. But how do you go about not getting into trouble yeah. with, you know, your boss or the administration or things yeah. like that if yeah. you go too far? Uh, number one, ask questions. Ask questions. So a person says, this is what I think about such and such issue. 
say, well, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Um, why do you think that that's the best way to go? What's your thinking on that? And this is a killer. What are the best things you've read on the opposite view? And what do you think two or three of their best arguments are that you had to refute in order to feel settled in your opinion? Well, geez, I mean, you haven't done anything but be Columbo here and ask a few questions. <laughs> but, but learn to... Don't, don't think that we Christians are always the ones that have got to answer questions. Other people need to defend their views. And so we need to push back and say, well, you know, why would you believe such a thing? Tell me your thinking. What have you read on the other side? So that's the first thing you can do. And who, you can't, what's wrong with asking questions? And then if you want to present your own view, then you can say something like this. You don't want to say, well, you ignorant jerk. Uh, here's the truth of the matter. You might say, well, I, I, I have a little bit of, I have a, a different way of looking at it, and um, I, I, it'd be interested to see what you think about this. It, it, it seems to me that, and then you put it in kind of a less than a dogmatic way, but it, you know, it seems to me that such and such, that the fetus has been clearly demonstrated to be a human person, and therefore killing it is, is taking the life of an innocent human person. Um, and I just have trouble getting away from that. What's your thinking on that? that? Those are a couple of things you can do. But, but you know, you want to live to fight another day. So uh, don't shoot yourself in the foot and get fired. Can I just add a couple things to that real quick, JP? Absolutely. Uh, I have three biblical bases for which... I would just add to that, and uh, you talk about this in your book, Scientism and Secularism, like if, if it's something about abortion, you might say, let's, let's read some embryology together uh, and start to see what the leading scientists think uh, on what human life is. But in, in three biblical points that I see is, uh, one, what does Peter say to the council that tells him to quit speaking truth, quit speaking the name of Jesus? Do I answer to man or do I answer to God? And so I'd keep speaking the truth. Uh, secondly, is that Jesus said that no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Know that your work is valuable and the truth that you speak uh, is going forth uh, courageously. And thirdly, is what Paul said, is that if I do not speak in love, I am nothing but a noisy gong. And I am a firm believer that we can say just about literally anything if we say it with sincere love. Uh, because the questions that you ask, like, like Dr. Moreland just uh, mentioned, if we say those in love, even if they're hard questions, they can be received a whole lot differently than said with some kind of uh, mad or upset demeanor behind them. And, and may I say, please, this is not, I wasn't paid to do this, recruit people to come to this church and I'll tell you why. Uh, your pastor, Tim, cares about this stuff. Mm -hmm. That's why I was invited in. He is a solid, thoughtful, intelligent teacher. And that ain't half bad. So you, you got, that's, that's rare. You guys need to know how lucky you are. Secondly, this, this gentleman is a very bright young man who, who is doing his homework. So you have people on the staff that care about this and know how to train you and help. So bring people to get exposed to this, plus the worship is, is off the charts. Amen. So, uh, and I don't doubt, I love that. Don't hear me saying you just got to be a you know, a, a brain in a vat or something. 
I've uh, used the Bible all my life as my primary source of information, primary source of wisdom, and everything else. And when people come with these kinds of issues, I always speak to them from the Word. And so you're saying that we need to bring evidence. Where do I begin? And, and what sources do I look at? And what are reliable? Yes. Well, you, you, you start with where Paul started. Not with the Bible, but with creation. Paul says that we know God exists, not because the Bible says so. He never says that. Uh, he says we know God exists because from the created world. And so you begin to point to things about creation. Like it's unbelievably, uh, well, desi- it's unbelievably well designed. It had to come from somewhere. Uh, those are simple ways of putting it. And, um, uh, and I think that, it, I think that if, if I may say so, um, the Bible doesn't work with people. And people say, well, it's the Word of God. It's got power. No, it doesn't have power. It has authority. And it only has power to those hearts that are willing to open up to it. So if you share it with somebody who doesn't buy it, it will not have power on them. It's, 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 it's mythology and mysticism that thinks that all you need to do is give them Bible verses, and that's going to be powerful enough. If that's all you can do, do it. But when, if people don't accept that, then their hearts will not be open to that. But I've led, I've probably led, I don't know, three or four or 5,000 people to Christ, and I've led a lot of people to Christ through reasoning. Can you argue somebody into the kingdom? Yes. Paul, <laughs> Paul, Paul did it in Acts 14 and 17. It says, and some of them were persuaded. Mm-hmm. Now, would you do it without the Holy Spirit? I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> I would never go into a witnessing situation without telling the Spirit, I'm in trouble here. You've got to help me. I, I, need your, I need you to work on this person. But then I, I, I will give what I have. So it's a both and. And I think that your approach worked back in the day, but we've turned so secular that, it, that we need other tools in addition to that. That's all I'm saying. Thank you for your, thank you for your openness to my response, ma'am. I appreciate it. I have a, I have a follow-up question. Yeah. And then we'll do one more. Um, how do you, in terms of gathering information from extra biblical sources and those, those kinds of things, how would you advise people on uh, judging the, uh, the truth claims that are being made in any given source, the reliability of, of sources yeah. that are available? I think here is where you have to rely upon uh, wise people in the body who know about these things. Typically, I will trust a solid evangelical publisher if the book is produced by a really good, well-respected publisher or by a professor that teaches at a seminary that is widely regarded as a solid seminary, that I'm inclined to be more open to what they say. They're not always right, but I'm more open. But if I were you and you, did, and you needed help on that, I'd go to Joe or Tim or somebody and say, because uh, you've got these people on the scene and they're fully able to help guide you. You have a specific issue they can give you a reading resource on, on something to read about that. Like I'm going to send an issue that's about, there's a little booklet 75 pages long that is one of the best things I've read on the homosexual question. 
And it deals with not only what the truth of the matter is, both from the Bible and from medical science, but then how do we pastor and relate to the... It's a great book. He's going to email me. I'll let him know what it is. If you want to learn about that, ask him and read it. So, so uh, great question. Rely upon people you trust, and they might be able to give you sources because they fished around in this uh, pond for a while. Amen. Bruce. I'm reading Dr. Stephen Meyer's book on the cell. Oh, man. For a, Do I? Yeah. I'm feeling a whole lot of love in this room yeah, right now. Yeah. For a BC student in biology, uh, if I'd just gone to class, you know. That yeah. Would yeah. <laughs> but he has this neat little thing, this chicken and egg question he talks about in the cell, where it takes protein to make DNA right. and DNA to make protein. You got a showstopper at the beginning, even before the DNA forms itself in evolutionary biology. I raised this issue with a PhD in biology, and he just said, "Well, we'll know someday." And yeah, the, right. The evidence has been washed away. Right. It's the promise. What do you do? Note. Yeah. Huh? You yeah. You, you, have, you say, "Well, look, you have to base your conclusions on the evidence that's available right now. You can't base your uh, conclusions on." I, I hope to heck that we find something that'll give an answer down the road. There is an answer already. You, you don't like it, but it's, a, it's explanatorily powerful that God designed these things at the same time. Uh, and, if, and if you turn out to be right, then I'll remove this as an argument. I'll still believe in God, but God other reasons. But this one won't be a good argument anymore for me. But right now, you've got to base your, your, your rationality on the evidence available. And what we've got now, you should conclude. I'm tired of these promissory notes. It's time to cash a few of them in. Question right here by this gentleman. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Uh, hi, Dr. Merlin. Hello, sir. Um, definitely appreciate you coming and, uh, and speaking with us. And I fully agree with you about uh, the importance of knowing what you believe and why you believe it. Uh, you mentioned that it is important for us to read um, the arguments of uh, people who don't believe the same things that we do yes. um, in order that we can develop arguments against that. Who would you recommend as like a, a jumping off point for like atheists or secular authors uh, for us to read? Yeah, I, I want to qualify my remarks by saying that it would be best for you to read these things after you've had a fairly decent, somewhat of a foundation, uh, and so that you can read them. And, and if you don't know how to get answers to the things they raise, you can go to Joe or Tim or so, somebody. Yeah. Um, uh, well, the, the, the smartest, best atheist uh, in, in the world today that's doing the best job of defending atheism is Graham Opie. Uh, but his books are too hard to understand by an average audience. He's a very technical philosopher. I've crossed swords with him in, uh, two or three times in journal articles. And uh, I think a number of our brothers and sisters have pretty well handed his hat to him, to be honest. But um, I, I, think, I think maybe... Uh, gosh, I hate to recommend Richard Dawkins... Uh, you know, one of the maybe maybe Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or one of the one of the new you know, new atheists. Uh, they're not very they're not very good books. The atheist community is kind of embarrassed by them, but at least they're readable. So no, I, I mean I can tell you that I know atheist professors that wish those guys had stopped writing. 
um, because they're pretty easy to take apart. But um, yeah, that'll be a place to start. And I think a good place to start on our side, uh, at least for God's existence, um, would be, uh, for those that are a little bit more thoughtful, Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. And maybe an introductory book might be The God Conversation by me and Tim Muehlhoff. It's very easy to read. It's got a lot of illustrations in it. Uh, those would be for, for the reliability of the New Testament documents and the resurrection. You still can't do much better than Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. That's just a good book to start with. Mm-hmm. Those are some ideas. I think, too, uh, just to prop you up just a little oh. bit, uh, start with Dr. Moreland and his books on metaphysics and the soul and consciousness um, before you go on to read something like. Uh, uh, Dr. Dennett's books on uh, From Bacteria to Bach and Back. Uh, so the, just like he said, you have a foundation for what metaphysics are, the soul is, consciousness is, before you go read someone that thinks consciousness is just an illusion. Uh, next question over here. Thank you for your conversation. It was really interesting. Um, I do have the question. I'm over here. Hello. <laughs> over here. Um, you made a really good point or interesting point about truth, but my question really is, does truth actually matter anymore? And then how do we actually convince people that it is, there is such a thing as objective truth outside of our own subjectivity? Yeah. Uh, one way to do it is to find out what they care about, treat it as though it's relative, and see what happens. I shared this last night, but I literally, this literally happened 15, 20 years ago. I was in a stop and go with a real long line, and so a guy in front of me and I started getting the conversation, and it turned to ethics. And he said, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't believe in these, these absolute truth things. I, I, I'm a, a live and let live guy. I think what's true for you is great. What's true for me is great, and we should just live and let live. There's really nothing that's true for everybody. And I said, oh, okay, I get, I get it. And I talked to him a little bit longer and found out this guy was deeply passionate about the environment. And so I said, look, I I don't know what you're going to think of me, but I have four buddies, and once a month we get together and put 50 bucks each into a kitty. And we buy a 100-gallon drum of sulfuric acid. One guy's got a boat. We drive out on Lake Paris and dump it in. And we've all taken bets ahead of time as to how many fish we're going to kill. And whoever gets closest to the number of fish that float to the surface wins the 250 minus the cost of the sulfuric acid. It is a blast. <laughs> and, and this guy's blood vessels were popping out of his neck. And I said, I'm not an expert on body language, sir, but it looks like what you think my friends and I are doing is wrong. And so it turns out that you are only a relativist about moral truth in the areas of your life where it's convenient, like your sexual life, but you're an absolutist all of a sudden when it comes to things that you know are true and that you care about. And so um, if a person says, I don't believe there's objective truth, they're clearly taking that statement itself to be true, so that's a self-refuting assertion, like there are no sentences longer than three words, is self-refuting. Also, I would say if a guy's dating, uh, or let's suppose, uh, I had two daughters, let's suppose this gal's dating, talking this way and is dating somebody, 
And she, and, and, and she says, well, yeah, I know this guy just really, really is into me. He really likes me. And he said, you know, I have heard that where he lives in the apartment complex, there was a, they took up money and there's a $500 bet that this guy could get you interested in him in five dates. And so what he's doing is he's trying to get your affections to win that kitty. It's not really true that he likes you. Would that matter to you? Well, it's obvious in that case that truth or falsity would make a big deal. That would matter a lot to them. And so you just can't live without the importance of truth. People will eventually return to the importance of truth in every area of their life. So just pick some specific cases and show how utterly ridiculous it is not to care about whether the guy really likes me or whether he's doing this to win a kitty, and that's all. I don't think anybody would believe that. That's how I would do it. Yes. Um, I took a summer class, and we talked about Neanderthals and prehistoric man, and I looked into the Bible, and it never mentioned it, and there is scientific scientific evidence, like bones, that there was there. Yeah. But to me, it kind of doesn't make sense because of, you know, Adam and Eve and Noah. So I just wanted your what you believe about that? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the Bible is not a, does not a speak about all kinds of things. Uh, it doesn't talk about animal extinctions and why these things. So, so the Bible, there's a lot of things the Bible just didn't focus on, and this is one of them. Uh, that Adam and Eve were a real couple uh, is in keeping now with recent scientific evidence because scientists have been saying that we all came from a group of 10,000 Homo sapiens and that there was not an original couple. And new evidence is showing that there was, in fact, an original man and woman that we all trace back to. And that it can be found in the book I edited called Theistic Evolution, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. So that is where you'd find that evidence. But um, Neanderthals... Uh, uh, it's, it's probably likely that they were degenerate human beings that, that came from Adam and Eve. And I think that I am not, please forgive me, but I'm not a young earth creationist. I'm an old earth creationist. I don't believe in evolution. I've spent a good bit of my life trying to critique it. I just happen to believe the days of Genesis are unspecified periods of time where God created on six days, but they were spaced, the creative days had, I don't know how long. I believe the universe is 15.8 billion years old. The earth is 4 billion. Life, God first created life here something like 3.8 billion years ago. Man, you can't evolve that. That's too short. And Adam and Eve are recent. They're fairly recent. So I don't believe in an old Adam and Eve, but... Uh, Neanderthals came from them. That would be that would be my view. Thank you for that. Tim's back here. All right. <clears throat> Several years ago, Michael Behe, a chemist, yes, wrote a book called uh, Darwin's Black Box. Yes. And his whole basis for the book was what he learned about observing the flagellar motor in bacteria, indicating that it cannot be, it cannot come Evolved. about as of. Um, Evolution. Natural selection, yeah. When you present these kinds of details to people, 
who are educated and in the naturalist mindset, one thing I've noticed that comes up frequently is a sense of biological prejudice toward their position. At that point, you're no longer looking at the issue, you're dealing with emotions of the individual. Yes. Would you speak to how to overcome that particular problem? Yes. Uh, first, isn't nice to know that uh, sometimes uh, doing this sort of thing exposes that they're <laughs> basing their beliefs ultimately on dislike for Christianity and emotion. It's kind of nice to show that once in a while. Uh, uh, that keeps us from being bullied uh, because you've, point, you've shown, hey, man, come on. Uh, the, the thing to do uh, I, that I have found would, would be to say, I know that you're a fair thinker, you're, you're telling this person. And so that means that you have read the, the, the kind of the top things that are against your view. And I wonder what are two or three of the books that you've read that defend an intelligent design kind of view of, of origins? And what were two or three of the best arguments that you had to find an answer to in your reading? And they, they'll think that you asked them to parse every Hebrew verb in the Old Testament. I mean, they'll go, I don't have a clue. And then, you're, then you can say, well, excuse me, but it's kind of odd that you formed your views and are so sure you're right about it, and yet you've never read anybody who has a critique of them and an alternative. Am I missing something here? Uh, so uh, one thing you can do is what you've done. You've, I can tell you've done your homework on both sides of this issue. And the, the person you're speaking to hasn't. And just a couple of questions like this can kind of surface, you know, man, you maybe ought to read a little bit more on my side of this thing. And uh, that, that's, that's one thing to do. Thank you for asking. I have a quick follow-up question for that. Dr. Moreland, how would you engage with, um, so Dr. Dennis Venema and Dr. Scott McKnight have written a book called Adam in the Genome, uh, which would engage a theistic evolution uh, from the biologos uh, kind of organizational side. How would you engage someone that says, you know, I'm a brother and sister in Christ, yet I believe this. How do you engage in conversation with them? Well, if you're a Christian and don't know a lot about science, I think the best thing to do is to say, I'll be honest, this is out of my area of ability. Uh, we do have people in the body of Christ and in the church who have written answers to these things, and I'm going to refer you to them, and then refer them to a book that I had the privilege of being one of the editors of. It's a 1,000 pages, and it's got 12 of the best top European scholars that teach in secular European universities all over Europe, and 14 North American scholars who are in the best in their field, and they write a critique of theistic evolution. It's called Theistic Evolution, a Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. You can get it on Amazon. And I would just recommend that. Read it. Now, in that book, there are four chapters by population biologists and other uh, biologists who have shown that the data that in indicate that there was not an original pair of human beings, but instead we all came from an original group of about 10,000 homo sapiens, that that, 
those data can, are not being understood appropriately. In fact, they're being tweaked in light of a need for evolution to come out true. And that there are ways to understand those data uh, more in keeping with an original pair of people. And there are scientific arguments presented for that. My view is that if you get, if you get asked a question from some specialty that you're not familiar with, then what you need to do is to take a deep breath and realize that the Bible's been criticized for a long time and it's done pretty well and there's somebody in the body that knows the answer to that question, even if you don't. So hold your breath and say, you know, I don't know what to say about this, but I know some people do and I'll try to find out uh, who, who, who their what their books are and I'll get back to you and then talk to this guy. Or, or, or Tim, or somebody else in the church, that dude back there. Uh, <laughs> talk to him, uh, you know, and uh, buy his coffee, and uh, you know, and uh, get get some resources from him. That's what I do. Great. That way, you don't have to be an expert in everything. Get Dr. Moreland's book. It's only a thousand pages. Real quick read. <clears throat> it's hernia-inducing. <laughs> Over here on the right. Uh, so, Dr. Moreland, we know that uh, as believers in the God who is the God of truth. He is truth. Uh, we have a firm foundation for um, a beginning point for logic. Um, and when you look through the history of the church and the history of science, you see that, for instance, the father of modern chemistry um, was a very strong believer, had yes. professed a lot of, I mean, a lot of papers about how God created chemistry and, for us. And his belief in God played a role in his science. More than a role. It wasn't yeah. just, I have this theological belief and now I'm going to do science. No, there were arguments about, yeah, please keep going. Yeah. Yes. So, um, what do you say to people who have been deceived into thinking that science has always been separate from the church? Well, I will say um, something like, do you mind if I just push back a little bit on this? I have a little bit of a different view. Uh, and so uh, I'll try to get permission to give an alternative, and I'll say, you know, my view, I have a different view on this. And, I mean, this is kind of the fact of the matter is blah, 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 blah. And I'll spell out whatever is relevant to what the claim is, and I'll say, so if I, if you don't, I, I don't mean to be mean-spirited here, but what you're asserting is actually, it's kind of ba ba it's kind of an ignorant claim. I'd come up with a better word. I mean, it's it's kind of out of touch with the real facts of the matter. And I'd really encourage you to go back and do some reading on this. And I think the guy will just be stunned that a Christian did that. So yeah, keep that up, dude. Could there be uh, somewhat of an argument from? where science has come from when we look through the medieval times and even prior when some of the greatest thinkers of the times were Christian or yeah. even Islamic. They were monotheistic, God-believing yes. people yes. Uh, that pushed forward the sciences uh, in their time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, Darwinists use theology to support Darwinism. Mm. <laughs> they say he can't do this. Darwinists, since Darwin himself... All the way up to contemporary Darwinists make the following argument. Here's the argument. If, if God were the designer of this part of this organism, he would have done a much better job than that because it isn't very efficient. 
It doesn't work very well. And so this provides evidence that there's no God. Well, if you can use scientific evidence against God's existence, uh, am I missing something? Why can't you use scientific evidence for his existence? I don't get it. What's the deal? By the way, uh, most of these things that are not efficient, they've ended up determining they are efficient either for the balance of the ecosystem or the organism itself. But more importantly, are you ready for this? Efficiency is only a value if you have limited resources. God doesn't care about efficiency. He's more interested in design as an artist, not as an engineer. Now, he's done engineering work, but his, his design, I mean, look at a bumblebee. Is that, yes, that dude is just kind of bouncing around, but they're so cool. And, um, uh, or a flock of geese, what the heck is that about? So my view is that God as designer uh, is far more of an artist, and you know, efficiency, just doesn't matter to him because he doesn't have to hoard resources. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't a good engineer, but I'm just saying that's not the only way to think of him as designer. So the argument's kind of ridiculous. That's good. Right back over here to the right in the back. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Moore, my question is, um, I found in, in talking with, with atheists and humanists that two of the more common objections that I get are, <clears throat> number one, that the existence of evil um, sort of cuts against the belief yeah. in a supernatural. I actually think, I, I reached the opposite conclusion. I think it bolsters belief I, I, I'm with you. in supernatural. I'm I think with you. The, the, the one that I get that is a little more difficult to unpack is, you know, the occurrence of seemingly random, horrific events, right? And I'm not even talking about someone dies after a long illness. It. A child who dies in a freak accident that just makes no sense. I get it. That's the one that I think is a little more difficult to, I guess, explain. If God is, you know, who we think he is and all-powerful and all-good, why does that type of thing uh, happen? Okay. Uh, uh, this is called the problem of gratuitous evil. That's a, the, the existence of apparent evil that doesn't seem to serve any purpose. It just seems random. And um, if, if there is gratuitous evil, then that prevents, provides a strong argument that there's no God. Number one, let's grant that the argument from gratuitous evil actually counts against God's existence. Let's grant that. If I've got 10 reasons for believing in something, and you've now nullified one of my reasons and showed that there's an argument against it, I could still be reasonable in believing in God for all these other reasons, even if this one counts against me. You're not reasonable in believing in something if every single argument relevant to the topic is in your favor. That's ridiculous. There are times in a court of law where it is, it is rational to say this guy did it, even though there's a piece of evidence that goes towards the person's innocence. So number one, it may be that I don't have to answer the question and I could still be rational believing in God. Number two, here's my answer to the question. Um, in order to know that this is a random or gratuitous evil that, didn't serve, that serves absolutely no purpose, you have to have access to the following information. First, you have to know the net balance of good and evil that follows as a result of this event for the next 100, 150 years. You have to compare that with the net balance of good and evil 
that would have happened for the next 100, 150 years if the event didn't happen. And then compare which is the greater amount of the net balance of good and evil, and that's the one God in his plan surely would have been behind because he has the long haul view in mind and permits some evils for a greater picture. Who in the world has access to that kind of information? It's real. How are you going to calculate the, in, in the, the amount in the real world? How am I going to can, uh, calculate the net balance of good and evil in a world that didn't even happen? My head starts exploding. And so I would say that you have absolutely no reason to believe that a random gratuitous evil is in fact random and gratuitous. And that God permits things for greater for, for greater purposes, but we, saw, we don't often know what those are. And I just, I admit that, but I'm reasonable in believing that because I got a bunch of reasons to believe in God, the origin of the universe, where did that come from, the design in the universe, blah, 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 blah. And so I would fall back on those. Plus, I, like I told this gentleman, this atheist who asked me a question last night, if you're an atheist, you can't have a problem of evil. Because evil is when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And that means they aren't the way they were designed to be. So if you got design, there could be evil. If you don't have a designer, you can't have evil. You can just, th things just are. You know, stuff happens. All right. I would add just a, a quick comment on a biblical uh, side of that when we see that in scripture of just the, the person of Job. Now, oh, yeah. if Job was thinking about his own self uh, or anyone looking at his story, even his friends that are in the book, right, they would just see his children died. What a randomly ter terrible act and good, good, had good. no idea what would come of that. So we can see that in Job's life. And, but then fast forward, even Job didn't know what was going on. He had no idea about the cosmic conversation that was going on in Job 1. That's right. Uh, but something better was coming. And though it seemed like random acts for his kids to die, uh, it turned out to not be random at all. And greater good, we're, we're, we're three, 4,000 years past the life of Job now, oh, and yeah. he's still causing good into the he world. Is. So I think that's good a good illustration of that. Last question. Middle back right here. So you were talking about the generation that I fall into. One of the things that I have found um, is I'm a mental health therapist. We are to help everyone, divorced couples, homosexual couples. Of course. But one of the things that I have learned, which I found not coming into this church, but others that steered me away in the past to Christianity, is because we help those people, we don't belong in a church. So how do we go about, with my generation and my helping profession, of getting people into the church, since we are shunned away from a lot of churches? Well, I, I believe the church should uh, be a place that is welcoming and loving and, ex and um, accepting when people with all kinds of, of sin and things like that come in. Because Christ, Jesus doesn't ask them to get cleaned up before they get saved. And so they can come the way, that, the, way the heck they are. And be who they are. And we start by loving and being gracious and accepting and helping. At some point after we've earned the right, 
the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is tell them the truth sometimes. I mean, I've had friends admonish me about, say, the way I treated my wife at a, at a gathering or something and said, dude, you were way out of bounds. That was not good. And, you know, it's embarrassing. I don't want to hear it, but it was the best. That was the most loving thing that he could do for me was to tell me, call me out and tell me the truth. And I think sometimes telling, let's say, a gay person, you know, I have to tell you that, that you're not going to flourish well and, and lead a, a, a fully flourishing, happy life in the long run if you, if you don't put yourself under the teachings of Jesus because they're the best way of approaching life in the most flourishing way. And to run, if you think it's hard to follow Jesus, try, try not following him. And so at some point, <clears throat> that needs to be made. But uh, pastorally, at an initial stage, you, don't, you, don't, you let them sit under the teaching of the word and, <clears throat> and um, be who they are. And, and I don't know where to draw that line. It takes wisdom, and it might vary from case to case. But at some point, you have to, you have to say, we, we, we would like to help. And here's, here's what Christ taught, and I hope this helps you. That's the best thing I can suggest. I agree with that, and with our, uh, many of you have probably done it, we have no place left evangelistic trainings here at, at LCF, and that's one of the things that we talk about is ah. when we share the gospel with people, and, and we see in Acts, there was three responses to that, some mocked. Some said, I will hear you again on this, and some turned and believed. Beautiful. Uh, for the turned and believed and for the I will hear you again on this, uh, we just ask, would you like to open the Bible and see the commands of Christ and how he says that we should live? I think that's exactly what you're saying, is, is to love them, help them, and just let the Bible speak for itself. And we look at the commands of Christ and we ask uh, provocative questions that makes them think for themselves uh, about who Beautiful. they are Beautiful. under the uh, lordship of Jesus. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Dr. Moreland, for thank coming you. to be with us this morning and spending time here. Thank you, um, folks. It's a yeah. great trip. Thank you. Thank you. There are Lo- just love your church, love this place. There are just we have a few leftover copies of his uh, new book that just came out last month called Scientism and Secularism: How to Deal with Dangerous Ideologies. A lot of what we talked about and a plethora of more that I wish we had time to dive into today. Plethora? What's that mean? Uh, Tons and tons (laughs) more uh, are in that book. Uh, Buy one of the last ones that are out there, order it on Amazon or something. Uh, And I want to pray for us to send us out this week. Amen. Father, we love you. God, you are so powerful as creator. Lord, that you stood outside of time and had the free will and knowledge to say, uh, be, and it was. And God, we are um, living in that and know that our lives matter to you and that you hold them in the palm of your hand uh, with love and with care. God, thank you for the minds that you have given us. Thank you for the mind that you've given Dr. Moreland. And uh, Lord, that we're a part of a body and that we all work together Lord, I pray that the things that we talked about today would manifest in our hearts and then speak out of our mouths to the world around us, that your truth may be known, that Jesus' name may be lifted high, and that people would be drawn to you. God, be with us this week. Holy Spirit, encourage us and send us out uh, as missionaries into the world. Uh, We pray these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks.